Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. And welcome to episode 000063 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands, which, as we all know by now, is on Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Their land was never ceded. It is still their land and always will be Aboriginal land. So how are you holding up? <laughs> um, we're not even quite into one week of the, the lockdown and the numbers continue to bounce around all over the place very unhelpfully. Seems every time that there's a daily infection rate with a two in front of it, it has a greater propensity to ruin your day or at least cast a downer on it. And I don't mean Alexander Downer, that would be far too much. But where my thoughts lie at the moment, when we're all doing it a little bit tough, but where my thoughts lie at the moment are with the people in the Alfred Street Towers in North Melbourne who are still in a hard lockdown, living in a building where the virus is lurking around every corner and potentially on every surface. And today is the 10th day of their lockdown. So their strength and their resilience should be an inspiration to us all. And we must continue to show solidarity the mob that I keep an eye on to see if there's anything needed or can be done by us is the Australian Muslim Social Services Agency. And they're actually situated opposite the estate. And you can keep track and keep check of their activities and what's going on in the towers and, and what's needed and what's not needed via their Facebook page, I think. It's probably the best way. And their Facebook page, page is facebook.com forward slash A-M-S-S-A-N North Melbourne. I'll read that again because I stuffed it up. Facebook.com forward slash A-M-A-A-S-A, North Melbourne. And that way you can check whether there's any supplies or any um, volunteering that uh, you can do to assist everyone that is still locked down in those towers. Now, as for the rest of us, it's, um, you know, I reckon it's kind of tense on the streets, but the streets are sparse and people are seemingly doing the right things when out and about. And noticeably in my hood, when I eventually descend from my ivory tower, there are um, uh, noticeably more face masks, which is pleasing to see because we know that people that are wearing face masks at the moment um, care. But the other thing about that, of course, is that they're not easily to come by. They aren't in plentiful um, supply. And I know there's many more people that would be, you know, want to wear face masks, but either can't get them or can't afford them. The ones at the chemists are actually really expensive. I bought a pack the other day. It was like, you know, uh, a pack of 10 for like 29 bucks. And that's just not sustainable for, for, for most people, I would argue. So we've just got to um, continue to do the right things, social distance, good hand hygiene, stay at home. And if you cough, cough into elbow, which isn't really sound advice at all because he's up there in Sydney. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> On the show tonight, I'll be joined by the co-chair of the First People's Assembly of Victoria, Marcus Stewart. This week, the Victorian government agreed to the establishment of a truth-telling process as part of the path towards treaty. So we'll have a yarn to him about what that is 
Um, but no doubt it's just another historical moment in the treaty process here in Victoria. And in the second half of the show, I'll talk with Auntie Tracy Hanshaw, the um, Awakable elder, law undergraduate and founding director of Justice Aunties. And she um, plays a, um, a significant role in this week's episode of Living Black on um, SP, um, on NITV, I should correctly say. And uh, they're doing a special on Aboriginal Lives Matter. So we'll have a talk to her about that. So, you know, that's it. There's always um, going to be a lot going on in this space. So uh, stay safe, stay strong and stay listening. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. So let's move on to our first guest of this evening. And we haven't talked treaty on the show for a while. Or should I say, more specifically, we haven't spoken, spoken about the um, Victorian treaty process. So, well, we now have a First Peoples Assembly. The Assembly is elected, the elected voice of Aboriginal people and communities in terms of negotiating um, future treaty discussions. And on the weekend, you probably missed it. You may have missed it. You may not have missed it. Um, if, you, if, you, if you dialed in, you wouldn't have missed it. Uh, the Victorian government actually gave a commitment to a, a truth-telling process. So what is a truth-telling process and what will it achieve? Well, who better to ask than the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria, Marcus Stewart? Marcus is a Tongarong man from central Victoria. He has extensive experience in Aboriginal affairs, but mainly in tr traditional owner settings. And he's on the line now to speak with us. Marcus, welcome to the mission. No, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I ask every guest this, especially those of us that are in Melbourne at the moment, but um, how, how are you and yours holding up uh, during these extraordinary times? No, I mean, I think like every uh, every Victorian in Metro Melbourne at the moment, um, as good as it gets and living my best uh, COVID life. <laughs> yeah, it's um, something that we um, all have to all have to deal with. Um, before we give uh, the folk out there um, uh, an idea of what the, uh, the the assembly is about, we've spoken about this before with the former um, commissioner Jill Gallagher. Um, but tell us about uh, the truth telling process. What what does that potentially look like, and 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 what do we hope to achieve from it? Yeah, happy to. Um, for starters, um, July 11, 2020 will go down in history. I mean, what a historic day for Victoria. But, you know, an incredible moment in time for traditional owners and Aboriginal Victorians across, um, you know, across the state of Victoria. And I think it's a credit to the leadership of our Assembly and, in particular, our North, uh, sorry, Northwest um, representative, Jason Kelly, who's really championed this truth-telling and justice process. And we saw on the twenty eighth, oh, sorry, on the eighteenth and nineteenth of uh, June this year, our assembly passed a resolution um, for a truth and justice process in the state of Victoria, and a credit to the government that come out and, and backed it in. So we um, we see this as a critical component to any treaty. I mean, so much so, you know, I believe that you know, without truth, there cannot be treaty. So we see it as an opportunity now to make the invisible visible and for no longer in Victoria to tell one side of history, which I think our state's been really good at, but mm -hmm. now an opportunity for us to speak our truth and tell the true history of, um, of the state of Victoria. I think something that you know will ultimately be challenging for us, but it's something that gives us um, an opportunity to heal, but 
also the broader Victoria, the opportunity to unite and walk, unite and walk with us. I think it's testament to Marcus um, as to as, as we're talking about off air just briefly about um, uh, the power of actually having a democratically elected voice, First Nations voice in the state, and the fact that that potentially means that, and it's shown thus far to date, that uh, the Victorian government is um, prepared to listen to that voice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're a representative democracy and made up of um, 31 Victorian traditional owners across the state of Victoria. Uh, broken into five regions and 21 democratically elected seats, but also um, 10 traditional owner reserve seats uh, of groups who currently hold rights under the Aboriginal Heritage Act, Traditional Owner Settlement Act or um, federal legislation, uh, the Native Title Act. Um, I think the credit to, you know, I guess what... I guess, but as I said earlier, the leadership of the Assembly and really honing in our priorities of how we need to move forward and... I guess everything we bring to the table and everything we reside over is driven by the voice of our communities and the engagement with our communities. So describe the the, the workings of, of the Assembly for, for, for people at home. How often does it meet? Um, uh, how, many does it, how many people sit on the assembly and I understand now that you've moved to virtual meetings because of because of the pandemic. How, how are you finding that process? Yeah, I'll probably start with the, the latter of your question first. Sure. I think it was tricky pivoting early, but it's um, it's a credit to our assembly, it's a credit to our staff, and it's a credit to um, our broader Aboriginal community as well that um, they you know gave us the time to to adjust and to pivot to a, a digital means um, of how we engage and how we we hold our meetings. But we meet anywhere from four to six times our inaugural meeting on the. I think it was the 10th and 11th from memory. Uh, it feels so long ago. Um, it was a different world. December last year where our inaugural meeting was um, with it, uh, Parliament House. Yep. And we've had our third meeting on the 18th and 19th of June, which was you know, highly significant because of the resolutions that were passed, including the truth and justice um, process. So we're made up of 31 Victorian traditional owners, um, as I said earlier, uh, 21 uh, elected members from across five regions in Victoria and 10 reserve seat holders, um, part of traditional owner traditional owner groups. Yeah, right. Um, I'm just going through the um, the Assembly Chamber's communique and, and like you said, you passed the motion for, for the truth-telling process um, during the 18th and 19th of June. Were you surprised by how quickly the, the government was able to agree to, to that or, or had there been, as you intimated earlier, ongoing discussions and ongoing advocacy that sort of led to this point? Yeah, so um, as, as you said, we passed the resolution on the 18th, 19th of June at our chamber meeting and wrote to the Premier and the Minister for Aboriginal Affairs, Gabrielle Williams, on the 23rd. Um, we were surprised, I think, there's kind of two parts to that answer. Yeah, we were surprised that um, we had that level of commitment. It's never been done in this country. No. It's never been done in this state, of course. So it's, um, it's. I don't think we really understand you know, how historic this process and this commitment is. But it's actually been built on 
you know, decades of activism. I mean, this has been part of our activism when we've marched the streets for decades, you know, even long before I was born. Um, it's been an aspiration of ours for a long time. We've always wanted truth. Uh, we've always held our hope that there will be a time when we can speak our truth of where we can unite all Victorians to walk with us. And we hit that point in time on the 11th of uh, July, on Saturday. And now we have the opportunity to work in partnership to develop the terms of reference of what this will look like mm-hmm. and what shape this takes. But I guess what's critical uh, or critically important to this process is that we'll be engaging with uh, traditional owners and original Victorians across the state on what this will actually look like and what shape this needs to take. So it'll be very much a bottom-up process and we'll be heavily dependent on and and relying on our communities to feed in, provide input and tell us what this needs to look like, how we need to run this process because it's critical to, um, to I guess, any success that we're going to see in treaty. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, we... We don't believe there can be treaty without truth, and this is a fundamental ingredient to achieving that. Do you do you have in your mind's eye at all, Marcus, what you think a potential process could look like? Without, of course, preempting anything, given what you've just said. Yeah, I guess we um, we we don't have you know a prescriptive. Um, you know, a prescriptive sort of list of what we think this needs to cover. But, you know, how could it not cover the frontier wars? Mm-hmm. How could it not cover the massacres that occurred in Victoria, the enslavements, policies of protection and assimilation, uh, our stolen generations and our continual removal of Aboriginal children at rates that are just completely unacceptable? We've seen through the Black Lives Matters the the unacceptable rates of Aboriginal deaths in custody. Um, and even the over-incarceration rates are still growing. And we're yep. in 2020. Yeah, there's, and, there's, and that's more in, you know, the here and now. So there's a lot of things we'd need to consider that colonisation, you know, has done. Um, but what we have to be clear on as well, that this has to be a mechanism and it has to have... It has to provide a culturally safe environment and space for our people to come forward to be able to speak their truth and also have the services, the therapeutic responses that are culturally safe to support them when they go back to their families, when they go back to their communities because, you know, this has impacted all Aboriginal people across the state of Victoria, whether it be direct trauma, uh, transgenerational trauma or just um, vicarious trauma of, you know, Mm. us knowing and and having connection to it. So we have to, I think we have to think about how and best we go about this, but that is really the decision and the discussion for um, traditional owners and Aboriginal communities across the state of Victoria. I think most people would be, uh, you know, um, totally ignorant, but it's not their fault, of course, but totally ignorant of the Aborigines Protection Act and, and the amendment to that act in, in 1915 that basically gave the state sweeping powers to, first of all, prevent, um, and I'm using quotation marks here, um, half-castes from connecting with uh, full bloods on, on missions. Um, it gave the state sweeping new powers to just remove children from those families um, without a hearing, without any sort of 
um, trial or, or or any reasoning to, to to the family. And when we talk about genocide, and it's a, it's a confronting word, and it's a it's a word that um, a lot of people really struggle with. But when we talk about that, the the the, the acts of the state to move towards actually either wiping out Aboriginal people in Victoria or breeding out Aboriginal people in Victoria uh, are found in acts like that, which are there for everyone to read and they're indisputable. How far do we have to go to get the people of Victoria to have a full reckoning around true history? It's, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question and that's a question that we'll be, we'll be putting to um, to our communities on. I think what's clear and what we, what we set out to achieve is a number of things. And I think Grant, uh, Stan Grant summed it up uh, last night on Four Corners perfectly, and that's that as Aboriginal people and traditional owners, we no longer want to be you know, shackled to the chains of history. We want to move forward. We want to be able to tell our truth. We want to heal, and we want to unite with our fellow Victorian. So, you know, I've often thought about, you know, what a future Victoria would look like that we all belong to and you know, one that we all connect with, that our children can embrace as their own. Um you know, and I think that's the hope that we have through this process can really change our our narrative of our state. And you know, we're all connected in some way, whether it's me being a Tunnerong traditional owner or it's whether it's you living on Aboriginal land. We all have a responsibility and we all have a story. And that's why it's important now for us to look at what the true history of our um of our state is. We can't I guess we we can't change we can't change history, but what we can do, you know, collectively, is we can change how history is viewed for our people and for Victoria. And I think that's the beauty of what we have in front of us right now through this truth-telling process. And you know, at the end of the day, if you know, we're trying to sell this thing broad, more broadly to the to the people of Victoria. It's it it may be a painful thing for some, but at the end of the day, it's going to add to our understanding of our own history, and steal our resolve not not to do it again so um it's a it's a great announcement it's 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 testament to the power of the assembly it's a testament to the power of years and years of advocacy around trying to get true history on the agenda um Speaking of agendas, you've got a tremendous amount of work. I went through the, the communique and I looked at all the various items that you're working on, um, you know, self-determination fund, reports from various committees, um, admitting additional traditional island groups potentially down the track, um, the form of agreement made again, treaties, treaties or both. Um, well, what, what are some of uh, the main priorities for the Assembly coming up in the not-too-distant too distant future, Marcus. Well, there's a number of them, as you, as you just stated. But um, I think, as you know, obviously, truth telling is critical, and it's something we want to get right. We've got a three to six month um, sort of time frame to be able to develop a, a terms of reference, and we've obviously done a bit of thinking on that, and we're sure government have probably done the same. We have um, now a, a block of three weeks where we're going to do some intensive engagement with our communities across Victoria on, you know, the, um, I guess the key question is, you know, what's on the table for treaty? What, what, what goes into a treaty negotiation framework? Uh, and then we'll hit another block um, where we'll be looking at, you know, what's, 
what shape we want the treaty authority to look like, which is the independent umpire. We've done a lot of work on it, but that's still that's still in play. And on top of what um, what you've mentioned as well, we're currently developing an elders' voice, which is you know a mechanism to empower the authority of our elders through this process, which are critical. So important. guiding and wisdom holders, um, and that's who. That's who we need to um, to bring along on this journey and make sure we've got them front front and centre and playing the role that they have, you know, throughout um, the last sixty thousand years. Well, we wish you um, all the best, Marcus um, Marcus Stewart, the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. Um, like to get you back on the show on a more regular basis to give us uh, an update on how things are tracking. If that's all right with you, I'm more than happy to. Thanks for having me. No worries. And if you want to find out more information, if you want to have a look at the communique that I've been reading from this evening and um, the makeup of the Assembly, just go to firstpeoplesvic.org and that's the website for the Assembly. Uh, Marcus Stewart, thank you so much for your time again. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Now, just because the furor over Black Lives Matter has died down since its zenith in uh, June doesn't mean the movement doesn't carry on and the issues around incarceration rates and the death of Aboriginal men and women don't also echo down the road with the street chance of Black Lives Matter. Things remain dire in this country, and as to date, not one jurisdiction, state or federal, has shown even the slightest hint of addressing the multitude of issues raised by Aboriginal people and our allies during this most recent Black Lives movement. Only Tracy Hanshaw is an Awapagal elder, a law undergraduate and founding director of Justice Aunties Incorporated a service that provides community support with police corrective services, the Department of Justice, probation and parole, plus community transition to support families through deaths in custody and other coronial inquests. Aunt Tracy features in an episode of NITV's Living Black, Aboriginal Lives Matter special on NITV tomorrow at 8.30, Wednesday the 15th of July. And she's on the line now to tell us about her lived experience and what she has to say on the show tomorrow evening. And Tracy, welcome to Triple R Melbourne. Hello, thanks for having me. Now, the How main, are you? Yeah, well, don't make me cry with with simple questions <laughs> like that. We're in, we're in lockdown, but we're doing well. I think everyone's doing the right thing, and I'll just hope that... Um, you guys up there in New South Wales uh, dodged the bullet that we've copped. But um, as we are saying briefly off air, Tracy, that, uh, you know, signs aren't particularly that good at the moment. So we've just got to um, hope people continue to do the right thing up there. Now, um, well, you're all praying for you, <laughs> Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Now, you're, um, you appear on the show, which I watched this afternoon, because you are a family mm-hmm. fa- um, friend of, of the Ma family. Uh, and Rebecca Ma passed away in the Maitland Police Station back in 2016. Um, and due to illness in the family, the Ma family, you've become the spokesperson for, for that family. Can you tell us yeah, what, happened, what happened to Rebecca in custody? Okay, so next week on the 19th of July will be the fourth anniversary of Rebecca's passing. 
Um, she was not arrested. She had not broken any laws. She was not in custody. The police had, under the New South Wales law, under six, Lepra, Section 16 of LEPRA, which is police have the duty of care to um, detain people that they feel intoxicated, um, took upon themselves the duty of care. They felt that they could care for Rebecca um, better than she could um, care for herself or her friend could care for her um, on that particular night, on the 18th of July. And so when Rebecca's friend was walking her on route to Maitland Police Station, um, police picked Rebecca up from the side of the road and took took on the duty care role for her. Um, they took her back to the police station. They felt that she was intoxicated at the time. However, the autopsy report that was released in the coronial inquest um, stated that she had no alcohol in her system, um, nor did she have any illicit drugs. So she wasn't under the influence of illegal drugs or had any alcohol in her system. It also stated she had no um, HIV also, which was um, alleged that she had by police. So took her back to the police station. Um, because she hadn't broken any laws and wasn't under arrest, they did not activate the um, custody notification system with Aboriginal Legal Services, um, which they which is mandatory whenever an Indigenous person is under arrest. But because Rebecca wasn't under arrest, no one was notified that she was in the police cells. It is it, um, it is sadly a, a very familiar story story, isn't it? Yes, and you know um, when in my view as um, a member of the public or just an ordinary person in the street, when somebody takes on a role uh, as duty of care of a person, they then make themselves responsible for that person. Yeah. So they're then saying that they're more suitable to take care of that person than themselves. So if you're going to take on that role, then you take it very seriously and you act on it. You, if had they have taken Rebecca to Maitland Hospital, which was which was actually closer to where they were than Maitland Police Station, Rebecca would be alive today. The coroner, the coroner, the coroner actually said, you know, the, the the death of Rebecca in 2016 could have been prevented if police had simply called an ambulance or conducted more thorough searches while she was in custody. Um, and so right. again, we we have a case here where uh, someone is put in custody on um, on a on a you know less than tangible suspicion or something or other thrown in the cell and then basically left and not checked upon to die when more often than not, and we saw it down here with um, uh, Aunty Tanya Day, the first Tanya port of call yeah. should be to actually call someone who can actually care for the welfare, like an ambulance or, or, or some sort of other um, social worker. But that didn't happen here and that didn't happen with Rebecca either. No, and let's be very clear Police are trained in enforcing the law, yep. not in medicine. They're not qualified. 
under any circumstances to make an assessment on somebody's health condition. They are there solely trained to enforce the law, not to make medical diagnoses. So how they could even um, be in a position to make such a judgment call when they're not qualified to make that call is beyond me. And one, the police officer that actually, uh, one of the police officers, sorry, um, back at the station at Maitland Police Station, requested that the acting sergeant in the charge desk four times in 20 minutes suggested to that officer, one officer to another officer, that they should call an ambulance. I think we should call an ambulance. I witnessed it myself in the CCTV footage during the inquest. Mm. And the acting sergeant said, to be right, mate, to be right, she'll sleep it off with the words he used. Well, yeah, with no, with no, with no, with no qualifications or expertise in in healthcare um, at all. I think that was one of the, you know, just to go on off, off on a little bit of a tangent, uh, Aunt Tracy was one of the disturbing things about seeing the response to people in the lockdown towers down here in Melbourne um, in terms of it being basically a police response in the first instance and not being a health and welfare response. Um, so, so governments around the country have a long way to go in terms of recognising the difference between enforcement and, and healthcare. And I guess that's one of the reasons that you've um, established Justice, Justice Arnie's. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the role and function of uh, Justice Arnie's? Well, I've been volunteering in the courts for some time because... Um, you know, whether it, uh, for whatever reason, you know, Indigenous um, people coming in touch with the justice system, whether they're, um, whether they've committed a crime or they haven't committed a crime or they're suspected of committed a crime, you know, um, aren't able for whatever reason to advocate for themselves or understand what's going on or the procedures that they're faced with, whether it be in a local court, children's court, family court, um, just someone that could support a family member or the person themselves that were going um, through like a death in custody or being accused of a crime in court. Um, some, a, lot of, a large number of our um, Indigenous people um, aren't able to read and write correctly or don't comprehend what they're having to do. So it was more a case in the beginning of just, um, you know, going along and holding somebody's hand because they were nervous having to, you know, deal with a system that they didn't understand. And, mm. um, you know, being an older Indigenous person myself who was born um, prior to the 1967 referendum when we actually became citizens you know, in the Constitution, I've seen my fair share of, um, you know, systemic racism towards me. And um, there was a certain part of me that felt um, not ignored but not able to achieve what I needed to achieve in the courts to get the people operating the court systems or the legal systems to understand that some of these people just don't know um, what, how things work. So I decided to legitimise my volunteer efforts by registering Justice Arnie's Incorporated as a not-for-profit charity. 
And, and if people, um, if people you know, want to, just because we're running out of time here, Annie, and I apologise for that, um, but if people want to um, uh, contribute or, or, or see what Justice Army is about, where can they go to find out more? They can go to um, justicearnies.com. They can um, find us, Justice Arnies, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, they can email at justicearnies at gmail.com if they want. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, we're always looking, it- you know, for people to volunteer in different states too because, um, you know, I just thought it would be something locally that I'd do locally here in Newcastle and, and and Lake Macquarie, and yet I get calls from all around Australia, Western Australia, Northern Territory, Queensland, for help. And, of course, I can only do it via phone there. So if there's some Aboriginal elders or older, you know, women out there that don't mind being called aunt, we'd love to have some support in other states too. Some, some take offence to it, but they have to get over that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're, um, we're quickly we've run out of time um, but if you want to find out um, more about uh, Aunt Tracy's work and, and see some other compelling stories around Black Lives Matter tune in to Living Black Aboriginal Lives Matter on NITV tomorrow night at 8.30pm and I'm sure it will be on SBS now after that Aunt Tracy thank you so much for your time thank you for yours and you all stay safe down there now okay we'll do our best thank you Thanks. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>